Good morning. It's good to have family in town for us, and it's good to have some folks back who have been members of our church in years past, so welcome to each of you. Let me um, just comment again on something that Mark mentioned, the getting ready for the vote uh, in January. We're calling the church to a time of prayer and fasting, and I just want to uh, remind you of that. Put the calendar up on the screen just to kind of show you uh, what we'll be doing. Uh, the first week of January is prayer and fasting specifically for God's leading for our church in this regard for the, with a pastoral transition and succession plan. And then we're joining with all of the other converged churches and missionaries and believers around the world for continuation of prayer and fasting for the, the remainder of a, basically a 21-day period. And if you did not receive a booklet last week, if you weren't here, we have 21 days of prayer and fasting that will sort of walk you through that, give you some guidelines, some suggestions for how to fast, different kinds of fasts, partial fasts, um, liquid fasts, um, a variety of, of options for you to consider. Another book that I would recommend that has been really good for me, it's John Piper's A Hunger for God, and it's his study of fasting, and so that is a book that you might want to pick up and just add to your personal library. I always try to encourage reading in our church family, and this is one of them that I would encourage you to, to add to your, to your bookshelves. And then, obviously, this is the end of the year. Um, I know a number of you did a Bible reading plan this past year, maybe the New Testament or maybe the entire Bible, uh, different portions. And I just want to, again, encourage you by, by suggesting a couple of Bible reading plans that, that I believe could be really valuable for you. One is the, is the uh, five-day Bible reading program. It's the one that I've used this past year. I keep it in the back of my, back of my Bible and you just kind of check off the days and check off the weeks of the year as you walk through. You can do either Old Testament and New Testament in the Psalms, or you can do just the New Testament. But um, I've, 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 you've probably heard me say this many, many times. You're just simply not going to grow. You're just not going to grow in your relationship with God. You're not going to grow in faith. You're not going to even stay level. You're going to go backwards if you're not in God's Word. And so I, as your, as your pastor for several more weeks, I plead with you, I encourage you, I exhort you, be people of the book. Make, drive a stake in the ground. I'm going to be a man who reads, the, reads God's word this year. I'm going to be a woman who is in the Bible this year. Um, you will not regret it, and you'll be setting an example for others in your, in your, in your world if you have children and grandchildren, you want to set an example for them so that the next generation after ours is not a non-biblical generation. And that happens so quickly. In Europe, that happens so fast. And I'm afraid it's happening in America as well. So that's one of them is a five-day Bible reading program. Another one that I just stumbled upon, it's readscripture.com, and it's an app that you download on your phone or on your, your tablet. And uh, it's really pretty cool. It's been developed by the Bible Project uh, folks. And it gives you little video clips at the beginning of each section. It shows you how the, the biblical narrative weaves its way through uh, Scripture. Um, you might want to check it out. Download it. Uh, put it on your phone. 
I probably will use readscripture.com with not just, I don't like reading the Bible on my phone. I like the book. And so I'll probably use that plan, but use my own paper Bible, if you will, to put those two together this coming year. Whatever it is for you, find a plan and work it, and you'll be glad that you did. We're in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel." And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so, Lord, as we open your word. We submit to it this morning. We place ourselves under the authority of the inspired word of God. Thank you that the spirit of God is our teacher and our instructor and our encourager and our comforter today. We love you. We love your word and we want to love Jesus even more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is the uh, fourth message in our series titled, Do You See What I See? We've been looking at the birth of Christ through the eyes and through the senses of four different people or groups of people. Basically asking ourselves the question, did they all come to the same conclusion? Did they all arrive at the same place when they saw Jesus? You know, whenever there's a situation or an event, people view it through different eyes. They look at it from different angles or different perspectives. Um, That's why we have courts of law, because there's a situation that occurs, and you've got the defense and the prosecutors trying to look at the situation through different lenses, trying to decide whether a person is guilty or not guilty, whether or not something happened or didn't happen. Um, This is why you have counselors, because a husband and wife are dealing with the exact same situation, but they're looking at it through different lenses. They're dealing with it through different, different emotions. And so you have a counselor who's trying to help them see it collectively together. This is why you have differing political perspectives. That's why some people today 
believe that we need the wall on the southern border, and there are people who are very much opposed to the wall on the southern border. It's looking at the exact same situation, but through different eyes, different lenses. And so we're asking the question regarding the birth of Jesus, did everybody see the same thing? Did they all come to the same conclusion? Were they all on the same page? <clears throat> so far in the first message, we looked at the birth of Christ through Jesus' mother, Mary. What did she see? What was it that she pondered and treasured in her heart? In week two, we looked at it through the eyes of the Magi or the wise men who came from the east with their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. What did they see when they came and followed the star to the place where Jesus was? Last week, it was the shepherds, the lowly shepherds, near the bottom of the, of the social ladder in Jewish society in the first century. And they were the ones who were given the divine birth announcement and said, go over to Bethlehem and, and see, what you, see what you find. Well, what did the shepherds see when they saw the baby lying in the manger? This morning, it's through the eyes of an elderly man named Simeon. An elderly man who lived in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now, this is actually a post-birth narrative. This isn't leading up to the birth of Jesus. This is after Jesus has been born. Probably a fair amount of time after the shepherds had witnessed Jesus lying in the manger. Probably some time after the wise men had come with their gifts. But it's still a part of the overall story. It's a part of the birth narrative. And so I want for us to see Christ through the eyes of this godly, elderly, average man in Jerusalem who was allowed an amazing experience before he would die to see God's deliverer, God's Messiah. So let me give you some context. Right after he has told us about the shepherds being present, at the manger. Luke then jumps ahead eight days in his gospel. And by the way, Luke was meticulous with detail. Luke wanted to provide a very, very accurate account of all the things pertaining to Christ. And he includes this piece in his narrative. And so he jumps ahead eight days to when Jesus would have been circumcised by his parents according to Jewish law. The circumcision of male babies was the sign of the covenant, God's covenant with his people. And as I understand it from a medical perspective, the eighth day following the birth was the ideal time, is the ideal time, for performing circumcision on a male child. And it was also at that time when the child would be named, when the baby would be given a name. <clears throat> um, we don't wait that long to name a child uh, in our culture. Uh, we generally do it fairly quickly. I'll give you a little funny family story along these lines. Uh, my wife's dad, Jenny's dad, uh, when he was born, uh, his parents couldn't decide what to name him. In fact, his mom and dad were actually fighting in the hospital room over what to name the baby. And uh, the, uh, her, her dad's dad didn't like the name that the mother had come up with. and His mother didn't like the name that his dad had come up with. And so finally, the doctor just stepped in and said, I'm going to name your baby. <laughs> and he named him Herman Casper Smeltzer. <laughs> That's the name that went on the birth certificate. 
Well, apparently, needless to say, the parents didn't like Herman Casper, and so they called him Jerry. <laughs> when he was 18 years old, he went to get a Social Security card, and they said, and what is your name? He said, Jerry Smeltzer. They looked in the records in Emmett County and said, there is no Jerry Smeltzer in Emmett County. So he went back to his dad and said, what's going on? And dad said, oh yeah, we forgot to tell you. Your real name is Herman Casper. Well, Mary and Joseph didn't have to come up with a name. They didn't have to fight over what to name their baby boy. They had both been instructed by the angel of the Lord, you're to name him Jesus. I'm, we're taking that job away from you as parents. You're to name your baby boy Jesus. Verse 21, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amazing, isn't it? The name given by the angel before he was even conceived in the womb, he was named. <clears throat> in Hebrew and Aramaic, it's Yeshua. Old Testament name, Joshua. God saves, God delivers. And so on the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised and given his name. Then there was another 33 days. So eight days, 33 days of purification for Mary, according to Jewish law. Verse 22 through 24, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That was the offering for someone who was poor. Joseph and Mary were poor. Otherwise, you brought a lamb and a turtle dove or a lamb and a pigeon, young pigeon. She would have brought either two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So it's been roughly six weeks since he was born, okay? Forty days. That's the setting for what occurs that we're looking at this morning when Simeon comes into the temple just as Mary and Joseph have, been, have brought their baby boy, Jesus, in to dedicate him. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem, such a simple statement, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. <clears throat> now I pointed out last week that the divine birth announcement wasn't made to kings and queens, it wasn't made to royalty, it wasn't given to the wealthy, it wasn't given to people of prominence in Jerusalem, it wasn't given to priests and rabbis and scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. No, it was given to lowly shepherds. And here we have another example of God specifically including people in this amazing divine story of redemption who would otherwise go completely unnoticed by the rest of the world. Simeon was a man living in Jerusalem who God said, I want to include him in the story. I want his name in my book. He was just a man. 
But apparently there were those who knew Simeon who recognized certain qualities of his life that I think are really important for us to make note of as well this morning. My first observation for you, and I just have two, two big observations with a few subpoints this morning. My first one is simply this. You want for your life to be known for the same things as Simeon's. You really do. You want for your life to be known by certain qualities, certain characteristics. So what do we know about Simeon? Well, I've already given you a couple things. He lived in Jerusalem. But we also know he was elderly. We don't know how old. And I dare say if I was telling this story to my grandkids, Asher and Eli, and I said, would, would tell them uh, Simeon was old, they probably would say, was he as old as you, Tops? I can just almost hear that question coming. We don't know. We don't know. We do know that people in general didn't live as long then as they do today. Was he in his 60s or 70s or 80s? We don't know. We just know that he was, he knew, he knew that he was getting near his time of death. <clears throat> and then Luke tells us three things about Simeon that are, that are pretty important. It says he was, first of all, he was righteous. Same word used to describe Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Genesis 6. Same word that Job used to describe himself in defending himself to his three friends who were accusing him of there must be sin in your life, Job. And Job said, no, I clothe myself in righteousness. I put on righteousness. That's a decision I make. I put off evil, I put off wickedness, I clothe myself in righteousness. Simeon was apparently a man who put on righteousness. That he had a reputation by those who were closest to him, being a man who lived righteously. He avoided evil. I think of Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. That was Simeon. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, not in his law he meditates day and night. That was Simeon. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. That was Simeon. See, when I think of what Simeon must have been like, I just believe that he was a man who just loved God. He studied the scriptures. He was righteous. He wanted to stay away from unrighteousness. Jesus would later say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be what? Satisfied. Simeon hungered and thirsted for righteousness, and at the end of his life, he was satisfied beyond his wildest imagination. Then it also says he was devout. Devout. Um, you know what the word devout means. A, a person of devotion. A person who's devoted. A person who's committed to something. And you can talk about, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a devout husband. She was so devoted to her family. Um, or, or we use it to talk about religions. A devout, a devout Catholic or a devout Presbyterian. Muslims are devoted to the Islamic faith. 
Or you can talk about it in terms of a, a, a cause. You know, an environmentalist is devoted to the cause of environmentalism. Simeon's devotion was God. Simeon's devotion was to knowing and loving and obeying and worshiping God. I mean, that was paramount in his life. If you prioritize the things in Simeon's life, the top of his list was devotion to God. He would have been careful in his religious duties. He would have guarded the time that he could spend in the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature. <clears throat> I would guess Simeon could be found every day reading from the law and the prophets, reading from the Psalms. I just have to believe that Simeon was in the book, in the, in the scrolls, I'm sure he had memorized substantial portions of, of God's word. Uh, that's, what, that's what rolled over inside of him as he thought about the looking and waiting for the coming day of, of the sending of the Messiah. He thought of scriptures. For example, Isaiah 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Simeon would have thought about that verse. Or Isaiah 9, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Simeon would have thought about those verses. Or Micah 2, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Simeon would have thought about Micah chapter 5. See, these were scriptures that Simeon had stored up inside of his head and his heart. And that's one of the reasons why I strongly encourage you, store up scripture in your head and in your heart. So it's there, and you'll ponder it, and you'll treasure it. You'll think about it, you'll, you'll, you'll marvel at it. And it was Simeon. Righteous and devout. What are you known for? What are you known for? Those who are closest to you, those who know you the best, what would they say about you? Would they use words like that? There's a third quality to Simeon's life. Waiting. Luke says, Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that might not sound all that important. In fact, it might even sound kind of boring, right? Waiting. Who wants to wait? We hate waiting. We hate waiting in line. We hate waiting at stoplights. We hate waiting for traffic to clear. Last time I drove down to Nashville, it's normally a four-and-a-half-hour drive from our house to Josh and Joanna's house in Franklin. It took me eight hours. Eight hours. And for one solid hour, I was basically sitting under an overpass in downtown Nashville, waiting for an accident to be cleared. They cleared that accident. I went about two miles, and then there was another accident. And I waited. We hate waiting. Yesterday, I made my world-famous Christmas caramels. And you have to wait for the temperature of your stuff, your sugar and Cairo syrup and butter to get to 242 degrees, and it takes a long time for it. We, we, we hate waiting, don't we? 
Friends, Simeon had waited his entire life for just one thing. For the day when God would send his Christ. The Deliverer. The Messiah. I mean, that occupied his mind, his heart, his passions. I can, I can hear Simeon saying, oh, how I want to see that day. More than anything else, I want to see that day. And I'm willing to wait. Let me just say a few things about waiting that I think are important. First of all, it implies trusting. Waiting just implies trusting. Uh, when our daughter and son-in-law are gone from the house for a few hours, or as right now, for a few days, uh, there are two dogs, and we're taking care of Pip, the little three-legged chihuahua. Uh, Pip waits for their return. And, and Pip's waiting is based on trusting. I mean, Pip will sit on a stool or sit, on a, sit outside one of the windows in our living room, looking out the window, waiting, trusting, believing that the two most important people in Pip's life are going to actually come back. Waiting implies trusting. Children wait for their dad or mom who's serving in the military in a far-off land to come home, trusting that they will come home. See, by the time of Simeon, you need to understand this, by the time of Simeon, some in Jerusalem had all but given up waiting for the coming of a deliverer. Because in your Bibles, turning the page from the book of Malachi, the very end of the Old Testament, turning the page to the first page in the book of the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, there is a leap of 400 years. I mean, the Persian Empire had given away to the conquests of Alexander the Great, who had brought in Greek culture. Then in 63 BC, the Romans conquered the Greeks. And so as the New Testament begins, the Jews are being subjected to a foreign power. They're being ruled by a very able but very despotic ruler in Herod the Great. And they're still waiting, hoping for a promised salvation and a coming deliverer. Many were beginning to falter in their waiting, but not Simeon. Waiting implies trusting God. And I just know from all your stories, I know a lot of your stories, and you know our story, my story. God calls us to wait an awful lot of the time, doesn't he? He calls us to wait and trust. Wait and trust. Wait and trust. Waiting requires submitting. Submitting to God's timing. The Bible clearly shows us that oftentimes God's just watching to see if, to see if we'll wait or if we're going to take things into our own hands because we don't like his timing. I don't like your timing, God. I've got to get this thing done on my schedule. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Isaiah 40, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Mount up with wings like eagles. Run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. But it's for those who wait. Remember the account of King Saul when he first became king? And Samuel tells him, you need to wait. I'll be back. I have to leave. I'll be back. And then I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice. And uh, 
Saul got impatient, and the, the set amount of time that he was, Samuel was supposed to come back expired, and the people were getting restless, and Saul was getting restless, and he decided, i got to take thing, this into my own hands. And so he offered a burnt offering and a sacrifice. And at that very time as he was offering the sacrifice, Samuel returns, and he probably smelled the smoke. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him, That's a meet and greet that you would not have wanted to be at. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were were getting restless and you didn't come, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you should have waited. You should have waited. You see, friends, not waiting, not being able to submit to God's timing Basically, it's pulling back from the circumstance or situation, saying, God, I believe that you are sovereign. I believe you're in control. I believe that your plan is perfect. I believe that your timing is perfect, and therefore, I am willing to submit to your timing. When you don't do that, that's when you manipulate, and you maneuver circumstances and situations to make it work for you. And that invariably, from my experience, gets you into a world of hurt and trouble. Simeon was waiting, and in waiting, he was submitting. And then the other thing that I would just point out, waiting forces resting. Waiting just forces you to rest. I don't get the impression that Simeon was antsy or flustered or irritable in waiting. No, I have the mental picture of someone who had a tremendous sense of hope and expectancy, but at the same time, he exhibited a calm spirit because he knew God well enough. If you don't know God well enough, you won't know whether or not you can trust his timing. Simeon knew God really well, and so he was able to rest. I think you would probably agree with me in saying that we are a hurried and harried culture. Wouldn't you agree? Um, I mean, many of us today are hurried and harassed, harried, because of the demands we put upon ourselves, because of the demands that others put upon us. And all of that just prevents us from ever finding rest. In the the new year, one of the messages I'm going to bring is going to talk a bit about Sabbath rest and why we're just beating beating up on ourselves without rest. I think Simeon was able to rest. I think he was able to rest. Waiting is God saying to you, be still and know that I am God. You should, maybe maybe 2019, that's, that's a verse that you should just say to yourself many, many, many times. Be still and know that I am God. So before we go to the second the second point here, I would just encourage you to look at those you know, righteous, devout, waiting. Spend some time just doing some spiritual introspection in light of Simeon. There's just an awful lot for us to learn from these, these people that, that, that God's Spirit chose to stick into the story. There's a reason. I mean, all Scripture is divinely breathed. Every verse, every narrative is in there because God wanted it in there. And God wants for you and me to learn from Simeon. Here's my second big observation from what we know about Simeon. It's simply this. 
You want to be sure and see Christ before you see death. And I would also say, I would assume you would, many of you would be with me in this. You want to do everything you can to be sure that your family members, your children, your grandchildren, your siblings, people that you love, see Christ before they see death. You see, there was only one thing on Simeon's bucket list before he died. You all have bucket lists? How many things you got on them? 10, 20, 30 things? And you, every once in a while you get to check something off a bucket list? There was one thing on Simeon's bucket list to see the Christ. To see the Christ. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so Simeon, Simeon thought, which am I going to see first? Which am I going to see first? Am I going to see death first or will I get to see Christ first before I see death? And Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now... I'm ready to die. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Friends, there is so much in that that is so remarkable. Just think about it for a minute. That God would care this much about one man who lived in Jerusalem's desire to see Christ before he died. That God would, the, the, God, of, the God of the heavens the God of the galaxies, billions and billions of galaxies, would be mindful of one man in Jerusalem who had a desire to see Christ before he died. That the Holy Spirit would reveal to Simeon that he actually would get to see Christ. That the Holy Spirit would lead Simeon to go, to, go into the temple at the same time that Joseph and Mary were bringing the baby Jesus. That Simeon would be granted not only to see Christ, but to hold him in his arms. And then that Simeon was at complete peace, ready to die, because his bucket list was fulfilled. See, Luke later records Jesus with his disciples. Then turning to the disciples, Luke chapter 10, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So, what specifically did Simeon see when he looked at Jesus? Three things. He saw God's consolation. That simply means God's comfort had arrived. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, verse 25. Consolation means to console. Someone is grieving, someone is hurting, and you go alongside. You want to console them in their grief or their sorrow. Israel was grieving. Israel was sorrowing. And God came near in the person of the Messiah to do what? To bring comfort. This is God's ultimate consolation. The same word, by the way, is found in Isaiah, 
verses that refer to the Messiah. Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Don't speak harshly to Jerusalem. Speak tender. They're so wayward. They've gone way off track. They're off the rails, but still, speak tenderly to Jerusalem because I love them so much. Comfort. Or Isaiah 66, for this, for this, thus says the Lord, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Simeon saw the baby Jesus and he saw the comfort of God. God's consolation. He also looked at Jesus and saw God's salvation. Verse 30, 31, My eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. My eyes have seen your salvation. Notice, he doesn't say, My eyes have seen some of your salvation. My eyes have seen a part of your salvation. My eyes have caught a little glimpse of, maybe it's your salvation, Nor does he say, my eyes have seen the three things that I need to do in order to be saved. No, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, friends, God's salvation is not a religion. God's salvation is not a list of do's and don'ts. God's salvation is not rituals. God's salvation is not a particular church or denomination. God's salvation isn't Catholic or Baptist or Presbyterian. God's salvation isn't a particular kind of baptism. God's salvation isn't found in the check or money that you put in the offering plate. God's salvation isn't good works. So if I can just amass enough good works, maybe that'll get me saved. God must, God must grade on the curve. I think I've got a B plus going, maybe a C, C plus, someplace in, no, God doesn't, God's salvation is not based on that. God's salvation is a person. And Simeon looked at an infant person and saw God's salvation. I could put verses up on the screen that talk about the Lord being my salvation. The Lord is my rock, the horn of my salvation. Psalm 3, salvation belongs to the Lord. And now Simeon is looking at a six-week-old baby boy, and he knows that he is actually looking at God's salvation. And verses that we looked at last week where Jesus makes all the claims that he came to seek and to save, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's salvation. And then lastly, he saw God's revelation. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's us. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, we're the Gentiles, okay? Simeon looked at this baby and he saw a light for revelation. This baby will reveal who God is. This is God's revealing light to to people who are in darkness and can't see. This, This one, 
will bring light to the eyes of, of those who are blinded and can't see, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Now, friends, don't miss that one little piece that Simeon says to Mary. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed by God for the fall, those who reject him, those who don't believe in him, those who dismiss this baby, who dismiss the cross, who walk away from it and say, I want nothing to do with that. This child is appointed by God for the fall and for the rising of many in Jerusalem, in Israel. And then he says a very personal and foreboding word to Mary. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You know, I think the absolutely greatest kind of pain that a parent can ever experience is the suffering of their child. I say that as a dad, as a tops, pops, grandpa. The greatest pain that a parent could ever experience is the suffering of their child. And Simeon says to Mary, Mary, I can't begin to tell you the, the degree of pain and agony that you're going to experience, it'll be like a sword hasn't pierced your skin, but it'll feel as if a sword has pierced your soul. Imagine Mary pondering those things in her heart. Mary would experience a degree and kind of sorrow like no other. I mean, there would be the flight to Egypt just a short time later, just a few days later, to avoid Herod's slaughter of thousands of babies in and around Jerusalem. Mary would watch her son be misunderstood and rejected by the crowds. Mary would be there to experience the, the events of Passion Week. And then she would be there that day when she would watch her son hanging from a cross and taking his last breath. And all of that was in Simeon's mouth, message, words, because the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, telling them everything that the Spirit of God had revealed to him to share with Jesus' parents. That's what Simeon saw. Friends, you need to see Jesus as Simeon saw Jesus. And you really, really want to make sure you see Jesus for who he is before you see your day of death. And I just, I know that there are many of us in this room who have family members. A lot of you have believed in Jesus. A lot of you love Christ. I can't speak for all of you. A lot of you love Christ. You're devout. And you desire to be righteous. And there's a waiting expectancy in your heart. And I, I hope and pray that 2019 will be a year where you, where, where you desire those things and hunger and thirst for those things even more. But all of it's wrapped up in this person, 
It's not in religion. It's in this person. To know Jesus better and to love him more. And I know that many of you My wife was talking to I think she's talked to either both or all three or a couple of her brothers over the last few days just saying, please go to a Christmas Eve service. Because she has a desire in her heart for her brothers to love Christ. And that's true for a lot of us in this room, isn't it? You've got loved ones who you just desperately hope and pray that they see Christ with the eyes of faith before they see death. May that be our prayer. May that be our long. May that be our joy. I just pray that all of you, all of us, my family, my church family, that 2019 would be a year to be a year. Do you see what I see? That it would be a year where you see Christ more clearly, more beautifully, more wonderfully than ever before. Amen. Let's pray together. Would you take a minute, please, right now and just respond to whatever the Holy Spirit has been saying to you this morning. Maybe just, maybe just one little piece. Maybe there's just something there that God has especially impressed upon your heart from his word, not from my words, but from his word today. by the grace of God that many of us have seen you for who you are. We, we have been allowed and blessed to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that is so wonderful. Had you not opened our eyes and unstopped our ears, we would be blind and deaf to the things of God. Dear Lord, please, for any who are here today who just simply need their heart to be renewed, for their spirit to be refreshed, that they might know you as the God who brings comfort, the God who's mindful, the God who is very aware of each of our lives, the God who comes near to us, Lord, I pray that this Christmas could be a very wonderful Christmas for all of us, but especially for any who need to know Jesus. 
If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ, never received him. Let me just lead you in a very simple prayer, such as someone did with me when I was 18 years old. It's just a simple prayer of faith. Dear God, I want to see Jesus clearly. By faith, I receive Christ as my Savior, my Deliverer. Forgive me of my sins. Please lead me in the coming year to know him better and to love him more. I trust you. I can't see you, but I trust you. I take you at your word. Thank you for your great, great love for us, Lord God. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we we look beyond the birth to your death, recognizing the things that Mary would experience when her soul was pierced, that you were pierced for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. And it is by your stripes that we are healed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ushers, please come.